Chapter 14, Part 1 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Chapter 14. Book 2. Changes in the Inorganic World. Aqueous Causes. Chapter 14. Division of the subject into changes of the organic and inorganic world. Inorganic causes of change divided into aqueous and igneous. Aqueous causes first considered. Fall of rain. Recent rain prints in mud destroying and transporting power of running water, newly formed valleys in Georgia, sinuosities of rivers, two streams when united do not occupy a bed of double surface, inundations in Scotland, floods caused by landslips in the White Mountains, bursting of a lake in Switzerland, devastations caused by the Ennio at Tivoli, Excavations in the lavas of Etna by Sicilian rivers, gorge of the Semeto, gradual rescission of the cataract of Niagara. Division of the subject. Geology was defined to be the science which investigates the former changes that have taken place in the organic as well as in the inorganic kingdoms of nature. As vicissitudes in the inorganic world are most apparent, and as on them all fluctuations in the animate creation must in a great measure depend, they may claim our first consideration. The great agents of change in the inorganic world may be divided into two principal classes, the aqueous and the igneous. To the aqueous belong rain, rivers, torrents, springs, currents, and tides, to the igneous, volcanoes, and earthquakes. Both these classes are instruments of decay as well as of reproduction, but they may also be regarded as antagonist forces, for the aqueous agents are incessantly laboring to reduce the inequalities of the Earth's surface to a level, while the igneous are equally active in restoring the unevenness of the external crust, partly by heaping up new matter in certain localities, and partly by depressing one portion and forcing out another of the Earth's envelope. It is difficult, in a scientific arrangement, to give an accurate view of the combined effects of so many forces in simultaneous operation, because when we consider them separately, we cannot easily estimate either the extent of their efficacy or the kind of results which they produce. We are in danger, therefore, when we attempt to examine the influence exerted singly by each of overlooking the modifications which they produce on one another, and these are so complicated that sometimes the igneous and aqueous forces cooperate to produce a joint effect to which neither of them unaided by the other could give rise, as when 
repeated earthquakes unite with running water to widen a valley, or when a thermal spring rises up from a great depth and conveys the mineral ingredients with which it is impregnated from the interior of the earth to the surface. Sometimes the organic combine with the inorganic causes, as when a reef composed of shells and corals protects one line of coast from the destroying power of tides or currents, and turns them against some other point. Or when drift timber, floated into a lake, fills a hollow to which the stream would not have had sufficient velocity to convey earthy sediment. It is necessary, however, to divide our observations on these various causes, and to classify them systematically, endeavoring as much as possible to keep in view that the effects in nature are mixed and not simple, as they may appear in an artificial arrangement. In treating in the first place of the aqueous causes, we may consider them under two divisions. First, those which are connected with the circulation of water from the land to the sea, under which are included all the phenomena of rain, rivers, glaciers, and springs. Secondly, those which arise from the movements of water in lakes, seas, and the ocean, wherein are comprised the phenomena of waves, tides, and currents. In turning our attention to the former division, we find that the effects of rivers may be subdivided into, first, those of a destroying and transporting, and secondly, those of a renovating nature. In the former are included the erosion of rocks and the transportation of matter to lower levels. In the renovating class, the formation of deltas by the influx of sediment and the shallowing of seas. But these processes are so intimately related to each other that it will not always be possible to consider them under their separate heads. Fall of Rain it is well known that the capacity of the atmosphere to absorb aqueous vapor and hold it in suspension increases with every increment of temperature. This capacity is also found to augment in a higher ratio than the augmentation of the heat. Hence, as was first suggested by the geologist Dr. Hutton, when two volumes of air of different temperatures, both saturated with moisture, mingle together, Clouds and rain are produced, for a mean degree of heat having resulted from the union of the two moist airs, the excess of vapor previously held in suspension by the warmer of the two is given out, and if it be in sufficient abundance, is precipitated in the form of rain. As the temperature of the atmosphere diminishes gradually from the equator towards the pole, the evaporation of water and the quantity of rain diminish also. According to Humboldt's computation, the average annual depth of rain at the equator is 96 inches, while at latitude 45 degrees, it is only 29 inches, and in latitude 60 degrees, not more than 17 inches. But there are so many disturbing causes that the actual discharge in any given locality may deviate very widely from this rule. In England, for example, where the average fall at London is 24 and a half inches, as ascertained at the Greenwich Observatory, 
There is such irregularity in some districts that while at Whitehaven in Cumberland there fell in 1849 32 inches, the quantity of rain in Borrowdale near Keswick, only 15 miles to the westward, was no less than 142 inches. In like manner, in India, Colonel Sykes found by observations made in 1847 and 1848 that at places situated between 17 degrees and 18 degrees northern latitude on a line drawn across the western gouts in the Deccan, the fall of rain varied from 21 to 219 inches. The annual average in Bengal is probably below 80 inches, yet Dr. G. Hooker witnessed at Churapunji in the year 1850 a fall of 30 inches in 24 hours, and in the same place during residence of six months, from June to November, 530 inches. This occurred in the south face of the Cassia, or Garo Mountains, in eastern Bengal. See map, chapter 18. Where the depth during the whole of the same year probably exceeded 600 inches, so extraordinary a discharge of water, which, as we shall presently see, is very local, may be thus accounted for. Warm, southerly winds blowing over the Bay of Bengal and becoming laden with vapor during their passage reached the low-level delta of the Ganges and Brahmaputra, where the ordinary heat exceeds that of the sea, and where evaporation is constantly going on from countless marshes and the arms of the great rivers. A mingling of two masses of damp air of different temperatures probably causes the fall of 70 or 80 inches of rain, which takes place on the plains. The monsoon, having crossed the delta, impinges on the Cassia Mountains, which rise abruptly from the plain, to a mean elevation of between 4,000 and 5,000 feet. Here the wind not only encounters the cold air of the mountains, but, what is far more effective as a refrigerating cause, the aerial current is made to flow upwards and to ascend to a height of several thousand feet above the sea. Both the air and the vapor contained in it, being thus relieved of much atmospheric pressure, expand suddenly and are cooled by rarefaction. The vapor is condensed, and about 500 inches of rain are thrown down annually, nearly 20 times as much as falls in Great Britain in a year, and almost all of it poured down in six months. The channel of every torrent and river is swollen at this season, and much sandstone horizontally stratified, and other rocks are reduced to sand and gravel by the flooded streams. So great is the superficial waste, or denudation, that what would otherwise be a rich and luxuriantly wooded region is converted into a wild and barren moorland. After the current of warm air has been thus drained of a large portion of its moisture, it still continues its northerly course to the opposite flank of the Cassia Range, only 20 miles farther north, and here the fall of rain is reduced to 70 inches in the year. The same wind then blows northwards across the valley of the Brahmaputra, and at length arrives so dry and exhausted at the Bhutan Himalaya, latitude 
28 degrees north, that those mountains, up to the height of 5,000 feet, are naked and sterile, and all their outer valleys arid and dusty. The aerial current, still continuing its northerly course and ascending to a higher region, becomes further cooled, condensation again ensues, and Bhutan, above 5,000 feet, is densely clothed with vegetation. In another part of India, immediately to the westward, similar phenomena are repeated. The same warm and humid winds, copiously charged with aqueous vapor from the Bay of Bengal, hold their course due north for 300 miles across the flat and hot plains of the Ganges, till they encounter the lofty Sikkim Mountains. See map, chapter 18. On the southern flank of these, they discharge such a deluge of rain that the rivers in the rainy season rise 12 feet in as many hours. Numerous landslips, some of them extending three or four thousand feet across the face of the mountains, composed of granite, gneiss, and slate, descend into the beds of streams and dam them up for a time, causing temporary lakes which soon burst their barriers. Day and night, says Dr. Hooker, we hear the crashing of falling trees and the sound of boulders thrown violently against each other in the beds of torrents. By such wear and tear, rocky fragments swept down from the hills are in part converted into sand and fine mud, and the turbid Ganges, during its annual inundation, derives more of its sediment from this source than from the waste of the fine clay of the alluvial plains below. On the verge of the tropics, a greater quantity of rain falls annually than at the equator. When yet parts even of the tropical latitudes are entirely destitute of rain. Peru, for example, which owes its vegetation solely to rivers and nightly dews. In that country, easterly winds prevail, blowing from the Pacific, and these being intercepted by the Andes and cooled as they rise, are made to part with all their moisture before reaching the low region to the leeward. The desert zone of North Africa between latitude 15 degrees and 30 degrees north is another instance of a rainless region. Five or six consecutive years may pass in Upper Egypt, Nubia, or Dongola, or in the desert of Sahara without rain. From the facts above mentioned, the reader will infer that in the course of successive geological periods, there will be great variations in the quantity of rain falling in one and the same region. At one time, there may be none of whatever during the whole year. At another, a fall of 100 or 500 inches. And these two last averages may occur on the two opposite flanks of a mountain chain, not more than 20 miles wide. While, therefore, the valleys in one district are widened and deepened annually, they may remain stationary in another, the superficial soil being protected from waste by a dense covering of vegetation. This diversity depends on many geographical circumstances, but principally on the height of the land above the sea, the direction of the prevailing winds, and the relative position, at the time being, of the plains, hills, and the ocean, conditions all of which are liable in the course of ages to undergo a complete revolution. Recent Rain Prints
When examining in 1842 the extensive mud flats of Nova Scotia, which are exposed at low tide on the borders of the Bay of Fundy, I observed not only the footprints of birds which had recently passed over the mud, but also very distinct impressions of raindrops. A peculiar combination of circumstances renders these mud flats admirably fitted to receive and retain any markings which may happen to be made on their surface. The sediment with which the waters are charged is extremely fine, being derived from the destruction of cliffs of red sandstone and shale, and as the tides rise fifty feet and upwards, large areas are laid dry for nearly a fortnight between the spring and neap tides. In this interval, the mud is baked in summer by a hot sun, so that it solidifies and becomes traversed by cracks caused by shrinkage. Portion of the hardened mud between these cracks may then be taken up and removed without injury. On examining the edges of each slab, we observe numerous layers formed by successive tides, each layer being unusually very thin, sometimes only one-tenth of an inch thick. When a shower of rain falls, the highest portion of the mud-covered flat is usually too hard to receive any impressions, while that recently uncovered by the tide near the water's edge is too soft. Between these areas, a zone occurs, almost as smooth and even as a looking-glass, on which every drop forms a cavity of circular or oval form. And if the shower be transient, these pits retain their shape permanently, being dried by the sun, and being then too firm to be effaced by the action of the succeeding tide, which deposits upon them a new layer of mud. Hence, we often find... In splitting open a slab an inch or more thick, on the upper surface of which the marks of recent rain occur, that an inferior layer, deposited during some previous ride of the tide, exhibits on its underside perfect casts of rain prints, which stand out in relief, the molds of the same being seen on the layer below. But in some cases, especially in the more sandy layers, the markings have been somewhat blunted by the tide, and by several rain prints, having been joined into one by a repetition of drops falling on the same spot, in which case the casts present a very irregular and blistered appearance. The finest examples which I have seen of these rain prints were sent to me by Dr. Webster from Kentville on the borders of the Bay of Mines in Nova Scotia. They were made by a heavy shower which fell on the 21st of July, 1849, when the rise and fall of the tides were at their maximum. The impressions, see figure 13, consist of cup-shaped or hemispherical cavities, the average size of which is from one-eighth to one-tenth of an inch across, but the largest are fully half an inch in diameter and one-tenth of an inch deep. The depth is chiefly below the general surface or plane of stratification but the walls of the cavity consist partly of a prominent rim of sandy mud formed of the matter which has been forcibly expelled from the pit. All the cavities having an oval form are deeper at one end, where they have also a higher rim, and all the deep ends have the same direction, showing towards which quarter the wind was blowing. 
two or more drops are sometimes seen to have interfered with each other, in which case it is usually possible to determine which drop fell last, its rim being unbroken. On some of the specimens, the winding tubular tracks of worms are seen, which have been bored just beneath the surface. See figure 13, left side. They occasionally pass under the middle of a rain mark, having been formed subsequently. Sometimes the worms have dived beneath the surface and then reappeared. All of these appearances, both of rain prints and worm tracks, are of great geological interest, as their exact counterparts are seen in rocks of various ages, even in formations of very high antiquity. Small cavities, often corresponding in size to those produced by rain, are also caused by air bubbles rising up through sand or mud, but these differ in character from rain prints, being usually deeper than they are wide and having their sides steeper. These, indeed, are occasionally vertical or overarching, the opening at the top being narrower than the pit below. In their mode, also, of mutual interference, they are unlike rain prints. In consequence of the effects of mountains in cooling currents of moist air and causing the condensation of aqueous vapor in the manner above described, it follows that in every country, as a general rule, the more elevated regions become perpetual reservoirs of water, which descends and irrigates the lower valleys and plains. The largest quantity of water is first carried to the highest region, and then made to descend by steep declivities towards the sea, so that it acquires superior velocity and removes more soil than it would do if the rain had been distributed over the plains and mountains equally, in proportion to their relative areas. The water is also made by these means to pass over the greatest distances before it can regain the sea. It has already been observed that in higher latitudes, where the atmosphere being colder is capable of holding less water in suspension, a diminished fall of rain takes place. Thus, at St. Petersburg, the amount is only 16 inches, and at Uliaborg, in the Gulf of Bothnia, northern latitude, 65 degrees, only 13 and a half inches, or less than half the average of England, and even this small quantity descends more slowly in the temperate zone, and is spread more equally over the year than in tropical climates. But in reference to geological changes, frost in the colder latitude acts as a compensating power in the disintegration of rocks and the transportation of stones to lower levels. Water, when converted into ice, augments in bulk more than one-twentieth of its volume, and owing to this property it widens the minute crevices or joints of rocks into which it penetrates. Ice also, in various ways, as will be shown in the next chapter, gives buoyancy to mud and sand, even to huge blocks of stone, enabling rivers of moderate size and velocity to carry them a great distance. The mechanical force exerted by running water into undermining cliffs and rounding off the angles of hard rock is mainly due to the intermixture of foreign ingredients. Sand and pebbles, when hurried along by the violence of the stream, 
are thrown against every obstacle lying in their way, and thus a power of attrition is acquired, capable of wearing through the hardest siliceous stones, on which water alone could make no impression. End of chapter 14, part 1